It's the Stazapod episode number 201. Can you believe it? We're on the other side of 200. Uh, quite incredible. Also, to date, 13,591 people have played and listened to Destazapod. I shouldn't say it's not 13,000 people, it's 13,000 plays. But that's pretty exceptional. So thank you guys for making it such a success. And uh, very glad to be going through all the questions today. Before I hop into what are some really fantastic questions this week, a uh, couple quick news items, reminders, things like that. Number one, it's winter time. Please heat up your toys as you're playing with them. This is not just about the initial heating up when you first get a figure. If you're doing building with Glyos parts, you should be heating them every time you pull them apart and pop them back together as a precaution during colder months. Trust me on this, it'll save people a lot of headache. Second point, uh, there is a final material style figure for patrons that have uh, been signed up in December. There's a $5 gift and there's a $25 or $30 gift. These are still largely going out. I have the majority of them still yet to ship. So what's going to happen is this December gift will likely get rolled into January Fulfillment and also January's Action Figure of the Month Club delivery. So um, just by virtue of shipping delays and that we don't have a big year-end drop in which most of our patrons sort of frequent, uh, there are still stragglers for this gift. I will get it to you and I will address what it is and the significance of it pretty shortly, but I want to preserve the surprise for those who got orders in prior to Christmas and have parcels coming to them. There are two sort of new things we have to go through that are very interesting. I will do that in short time. Just please be patient because the majority of patrons will not get this gift prior to the end of December, but I I have everybody accounted for. You will get them and I'll make good on that in January. Final piece, um, our next store drop is going to be a Turbo Atoll and a MoFo's joint sale. So we're gonna have our first painted style of MoFo and we're going to have Turbo Atoll, issue number one. There will be a bundle deal with a special figure. There will be a sort of pull together of Turbo Atoll related characters. And um, it's gonna be a one long awaited thing that I think you guys are gonna be very happy about. But um, we're not there yet so stay tuned I will give you information as soon as I have it solidified now I'm going to do things a little bit differently today with Q&A I want to start uh, in the middle with a very very important question asked by John Emmett on the Patreon and I actually think that this is one of the most crucial parts to what has to happen next with humanity and a choice we all actively have to make and I know that sounds grandiose let me read his question and I'll explain John Emmett asks, what's your approach to dealing with a disagreement of opinion? I've been trying to reflect on this and trying to change how I react to and respond to this sort of thing. I'm thinking more along the lines of inconsequential things, movies, pizza, toppings. It may seem strange, but it seems like a lot of people have difficulty dealing with that, especially online. I'm interested in your thoughts. So John, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, 
you know, the same sort of topic. And I think I have, I, you know, some, some very lazy insight that might be helpful. But what you're talking about is this, is the same thing that's kind of gnawing at all of us. And it is that we have lost the ability, or we may have never had it, to distinguish online from offline. And this is particularly acute right now in this past year because we haven't been able to interact regularly with people in person. We have forgotten and confused that a, you know, a uh, message board or uh, comments or a text is not the same of being face-to-face. We are social creatures. We need to interact with other people. And because of the restrictions of this past year and and the overwhelming sort of monolith of technology on a whole, uh, we have become a species that is very, very confused by interactions. And we take online interactions to be actual real-life interactions. And they are not. Now, that's not to say they, you know, we don't glean important information from using technology. We don't sustain relationships. We don't get to check in on loved ones. We don't, you know, all that is true. But at the end of the day, our minds have become incredibly confused. We've, we all have the brain poisoning. And we are unable to categorize when we're talking to another person, if this is an online interaction or if this is a in-person, real-life interaction. And we need to remind ourselves and start with a heuristic of separating all conversations into those two categories. Is this online? Is this in real life? And if it's online, we then have to process information using quite a few different filters. I think one of the most important filters you have to use when you communicate online is to ask yourself a question, would this person say this thing if we were interacting in person? And 99% of the time, the answer is no. Uh, now, uh, you know, I, I am a person who sort of uh, proselytizes constantly my brand and the projects I'm working on. A little less so these days, but you know, I'm a person who's been the tip of the spear for this project and sort of out there as a lightning rod trying to gas up people to get involved in the stories I'm telling and to purchase the goods that I make. And what has come with that over the past five or six years is uh, a lot of positivity and a little bit of negativity. And what I've found is, you know, when somebody is sort of negative or combative in comments, when you sort of talk to somebody one-to-one, that all quickly dissipates, almost instantly. Um, There is something about the anonymity of being online and leaving a comment and not connecting it to, you know, the end person, who would be me in this case, that allows people to be uh, incredibly opinionated, as John has pointed out, to be sort of fearless in their proclamations, to, you know, puff up their chest, to 
to just engage in the in the more base aspects of human nature. And when confronted with this, uh, they have almost all universally sort of withered away and acted like normal human beings and, and sort of, you know, resolutions were able to be reached. People forget that all of this online communication is part of the simulation, more or less. I mean, you are listening to uh, a simulated conversation between myself and you, and it hits the right notes. It it activates your brain in the same places if we were sitting down talking in person, but it is not that. It is part of the simulation. doesn't mean you can't have value from it, but it does mean that you have to sort of view it with not necessarily skepticism, but an acknowledgement that this is a simulated product. I know very well, you know, uh, we all know very well what, what John is talking about, that just this things are so accelerated and get so heated online and people resort to sort of gassing each other and trolling each other so very quickly. And largely it's because we are, as a human race, you know, more than ever before trapped in a maze, you know, with with no help coming from the outside. It's really, it's truly a unique and a, a terrible time to be alive. We we are all sort of relying on these simulated platforms for just measly shreds of human interaction. If you have watched the movie Feels Good Man, where they sort of get into uh, incel culture and, and people that their entire life is sort of online and being part of these communities, um, prior to shutdown, those lives were pretty bleak. You know, what do you think has happened to the vitriol that people like that have when they can't even go to the store? You know, it's been months and months and months of them truly only having the computer as their sole tethering point to the rest of humanity. Why on earth would anything good come from that when it was already such a sort of bleak and desolate sort of world outlook? Um, so in turn, the, the bad vibes on these machines have been amplified a thousand times. So what is the sort of solution here? Um, well, you have to schedule time to not be on any devices. And I struggle with this as well. I'm, I think I'm pretty good about it, but it is still something I have to be conscientious of. So you have to set a calendar reminder from 1 to 12 p.m. I'm offline. I'm not going to look at any devices. Don't charge your phone or your laptop in your bedroom. Charge them downstairs or in another room. Don't bring them into the bedroom. When you wake up in the morning, don't grab your phone first thing. Have a coffee, have a shower, feed your pets. Sort of, you know, think of decompression chambers in the abyss. You have to spend some time in a bubble before you're acclimated and can walk into a new environment. Do that with your technology. Give yourself time in the morning to decompress and then turn on the devices. It will help mitigate all this stuff. You don't have to engage in opinion and things like that. Fred Armisen had a great quote, and I try to adhere to this. He said, I have to make a choice 
Do I want to read online comments or do I want to have a good day? And I could choose either one of those, but I can't have it both ways. And I think that's very true. You can engage in opinions and online and back and forth and banter, but you won't have a good day. And um, I, I think we all have to sort of make that choice. And then the other part at the beginning of all this is really to separate all interaction into two categories. Is this happening in front of me? Is this happening online? And if it's happening online, you can kind of tell yourself this is a construct. This is not reality. It has the same feeling and some of the same textures as reality, but it is not face-to-face -face reality. And therefore, you can discount the, the majority of any information you glean from this simulation, as I like to call it. I hope that's helpful. I hope that's helpful information. Um, I do earnestly believe this is the big, crucial challenge for humanity. It is us learning better patterns in the technology that we use, being offline more, having some kind of intervention. This is why I always joke about the Butlerian jihad. You know where we. We all sort of line up at the tar pits and throw our devices into them. Um, I'm only half kidding because I do think a lot of humanity's salvation is going to be this very, very thin razor's edge between technology used to sort of help us or save us and us divorcing ourselves from the technology that is poisoning us and killing us and and making us all insane. So um, I did want to answer this first because I do think it is hugely important. This is going to lead me nicely into John's second question, which also has some shades of this, uh, these same themes. John's second question which is also very thoughtful and interesting. What are your thoughts on artist intent versus audience interpretation? Hard for me to explain, but like when an artist tried to make a particular statement with something, but the audience reaches a different conclusion than the original con uh, intent. Um, have any of your works have uh, had that happen? So this is also something else that I think quite a bit about. And um, I get exactly what you mean. I think like, you know, a good example is probably the Joker movie. You know, what Todd Phillips was going for was, in bad faith, severely misinterpreted prior to the film even coming out by almost all the critics. They essentially boycotted it, weren't going to see it because it was going to inspire theater shooters and incels to rise up and take arms. None of these critics had seen the film, by the way. But they, there was a pretty unified idea that this was a dangerous film and should be, you know, should never be released. It was irresponsible. And then the film comes out and it's actually about mental health and the crumbling of social services and, and the sort of responsibility of uh, all of us and the repercussions for that happening. Uh, none of these critics sort of issued a uh, retraction or an apology as far as I've seen. So it is a very real thing that can happen. Um, 
my personal experience has been less about my work with Knights of the Slice and such being misinterpreted, although that has happened. More with my sense of humor being misinterpreted. In fact, several times and, and in ways that got me written up at work or, you know, um, <laughs> into, like, sticky situations that I didn't need to be in, but because, especially in my younger years, I, I tried to be such a provocateur and, and so edgy in my humor, as I think all of us kind of go through that phase. Um, just would, it would always sort of deeply offend people, and not even in a way that, like, they could chuckle at it, just were only offended. And, you know, it, it, that's sort of my fault for <laughs> trying to be a little edgelord. But it does also, like, there is a sort of lesson there in that humor and creativity in general is not received by everybody. You know, there are really, you know, only a small portion of people that, that truly get something that is creative. You know, now, people, you know, every day people can kind of go to an art gallery and have some stimulus reaction to what they see, but they may not understand, you know, the craftsmanship or the, the story or what went on behind the work. You guys are great, you know, universally, because you understand the process. You're not just here to buy a toy. You're here to hear the story of these characters, to ask a question on the Stazapod, to look at work-in-progress artwork. Like, you guys are here for that entire process. You, you are creative beings, even if you don't have creative output, in that you sort of interpret and understand the texture and the nuance of these things. I think, uh, you know, for me, a good example of misinterpretation or people's own interpretations taking over uh, is probably Cross Skulls, his sort of 1984 look, because he does have the hammer and sickle uh, tampo print on him. Some people find that offensive. Other people see that as a rallying cry. Um, you know, for me, it's a toy in a specific era, reflecting a specific era of the world, you know, during the, the height of the Cold War, around 1984. So it is appropriate iconography to utilize, to convey where this person is from, what their views may be, and how they may be in opposition to, you know, a pizza corporation in the United States during 1984. Now, some people saw that as a political statement, some people saw it as a, you know, a signal to the tankies. It's time to uh, raise our flag. Some people saw it as an affront to, uh, you know, American sensibilities. For me, it is simultaneously all those things and nothing, right? As an artist, I try to just not have allegory. You know, uh, Tolkien was this way. He, he was good friends with C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was only about allegory. You know, his stories were about uh, Christ and the resurrection and, and, you know, all those very familiar sort of tropes. Tolkien, on the other hand, 
really tried to avoid allegory. He didn't want things to represent other things. He was happy with there being this nebulous and uncomfortable interpretation that happened to his work. Now, <clears throat> I think it doesn't take a genius to see that the sort of the preciousness of the Shire and the threat of industrialization, uh, you know, was something going on at the turn of the century in England and was no doubt infused in his work, but he largely tried to stay away from intentional allegory. And I think largely on the same way. Um, I'm happy for my work to be misinterpreted. I'm happy for my work when people get the point and sort of every combination in between. I, I'm just happy people are reading the work. And, I, you know, I also feel to have too much of a set interpretation in my mind is sort of robbing some of the richness of this puzzle that is Knights of the Slice and, and all the sort of satellites floating around it. I don't know the answer to every Knight of the Slice related question. I don't know the final story arcs for all these characters. I don't know a lot of this stuff I put down on the page. It is subconscious in many respects. It is a sort of automatic writing process. And sometimes I look back at early stories and I, I catch something that was not intentional. I didn't put it in there, but it becomes this new sort of truth. And I think that those are the best kinds of stories. Um, so I guess my, my point is I try to avoid having too finely defined statements. I am much more pleased by personal interpretation. And that may sort of be a muddy experience. It may be a little nebulous, but... Um, that's how it is in my brain anyway, so it is a sort of a very fitting version of that. So I guess my intent is to avoid the perception of an intent, and uh, I'm happy to let you guys fill in the blanks. Moving along, Eric Sorrels were there there be a clear mofo material boy uh no plans for that right now but i think over a long enough timeline that's you know that's definitely a style i would like to do so look forward to that in 2033 moving along ryan rusby childhood memory time do i have a top fomo memory from childhood of a toy that basically thought i would die horribly without but as an adult collector recognized as hot trash. Mine was the Ghostbuster Proton Pack, the one with the pool noodle sticking out the front. Um, I would say the majority <laughs> of toys uh, are hot trash. Um, no, I, I'm, being, I'm being hyperbolic, of course. But yeah, I think, um, you know, generally, a lot of the stuff I've tracked down that I, I, I had such a high perceived value to me as a kid um, really don't have a lot going on and are pretty chintzy indeed. Um, let me see if I can think of one. I think, uh, just generally, and this is a little bit later than childhood, but, um, a lot of the sort of 1-6 scale, very, very early 12-inch, uh, Japanese figures, 
that I really like coveted. I would see them in magazines and stuff in the late 90s, early aughts. Um, those are really not very well-made toys uh, and, and are quite expensive. You know, when I sort of got my first good job and I started tracking down a lot of those things, um, many of them would just instantly break out of the package. They weren't, they were sort of fly-by-night operations. You know, they were made with chintzy plastic, stuff like that. So I think um, childhood-wise, I'm having trouble recalling any, but definitely like that early era of, uh, you know, 12-inch collectibles over in the Pacific Rim. Definitely a lot of those experiences. Ryan continues on. I love the 3D file drop. I've been playing with my printer nonstop since those and the Teco Mini Mech download dropped in the last week. Could you talk about what brought you, uh, what brought the idea about? And do I think I will do more of these in the future? Um, so this is, this has been a long time coming. It's something I've wanted to do. Now the, there is a, a huge downside to doing this in that once the files are sort of out there, they can be shared pretty easily. And, you know, there's probably people that are, uh, have not paid for the file, but are benefiting from having those accessories. That's sort of the cost of doing business here. Um, I think that, uh, I want to do more of these for sure. They are extremely beneficial to me as a means of having a shortcut to introducing new characters without having to wait months or a year to actually tool a new character. So there could be 3D printed heads that sort of solve that problem. You know, it might not be a character that's strong enough to necessitate actually going to production with something, but if I make the 3D file available on the site and you guys have a base body to stick it on, then it kind of makes a little bit more sense and I can do some of my more obscure or unpleasant old hero style guys. Um, there's also things like, you know, the stub nose pistol, which I think is just a cool variant. It definitely fits into like a noir sort of detective story. And uh, given that there are two revolvers already, we don't really need to tool a third one necessarily, although we might. Um, so it does sort of make sense to just have a 3D file available and let people, you know, kind of scratch that itch. Um, the also, you know, the nature of resin printing and its fragility does mean that not everything is a good fit for this exact sort of, uh, you know, release. Um, I, you know, I, I, guns I think will work well enough. Things like swords or knives are probably not going to make an appearance there just by virtue of, you know, it's kind of a tough thing to print and there's going to be breakage issues and, you know, X, Y, and Z. But I really like seeing people's output with these files. I'm glad people embrace them. It is a small segment of our audience. Not everybody sort of has access to this technology, but it is fun to do. Um, and I think there will be more files coming on soon. If you guys like this idea and you want to see more, then pick up the files, buy them. That That is the strongest way to send a message that we should continue sort of exploring this avenue. Gordon says, you've mentioned your love for Guyver on a bunch of previous podcasts, including your excellent recent conversation with Matt. And I was wondering how you first came across it. Was it a figure, the manga, or even the weird recut live action show with Mark Hamill? Um, so I would I would often get magazines like Starlog and sometimes 
phantasmagorical, phantasmagoria, although I was often very scared of what was in those magazines. And um, they would have ads in the back, just in black and white, for anime and manga titles. And Guyver was always, you know, very prolific in those ads. And it was just completely entrancing. It, it, it just looked unlike anything else. So that was probably the first time I came across it. And then the first time I got to sort of, like, consume it would have been the Mark Hamill movie. Uh, which, by the way, that the, uh, the suits in that movie are awesome. Why there aren't more sort of mid-budget films that just utilize guys in suits and monsters doing karate, I, I don't understand. JT, uh, I believe he has revised this question because it was a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> what are your thoughts on getting the HasLab Razor Crest given recent show events? I'm still excited for it. I'm still on board. And I gotta be honest, there's no way that the Razor Crest isn't going to make a reappearance. They're just going to rebuild the thing, and they'll have some very poorly written line like, oh, I managed to find another one in the scrapyard, or something like that. I, I guarantee you, uh, that thing ain't going away. It's a it's a cash cow. Gabe Tovar, which Knight of the Slice character would rock a mullet successfully? That's a silly question. You know the answer to it. It's Radic, obviously. Uh, with the recent series finale of The Mandalorian, what are your thoughts on live-action series using the crap out of CG to make legendary actors look young again? Personally, I'm not much of a fan of it, more particularly when it's actors who've passed away. Thought it was exciting to see... Well, I'm not going to read the rest of this because some people may not have uh, watched it, although if you've been listening to Stazapod, I already spoiled this. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to stick with my Mandalorian finale review which I think was two pods ago, uh, I would much prefer you just get an actor who looks like that person. And I think, in the case of the person you're talking about, Sebastian Stan has an uncanny likeness. He's already in the Disney canon. Let's just give him his own show. I, you know, it works, but it still is uncanny valley. Your brain doesn't fully click over and believe what they're seeing. Um... You know, look, for all the faults of the solo film, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, I think the lead actor was pretty serviceable and had a likeness to Harrison Ford. Could we give him a beard and could he play Han Solo at start's end and, and go through that wonderful trilogy of books? Hell yeah, I, I'd be, I'd watch that. That'd be great. You know, I, I think that while we love the original actors, um, these are characters, and characters can be depicted by other people. Uh, I know I got a lot of John LaCarrie fans in the house. What's up? Um, George Smiley was played beautifully by Alec Guinness, and then was played beautifully by Gary Oldman. And it's totally fine. It's not an affront to anything. So um, I would like to spend time with these characters, but I would like younger actors to be recast, with the blessing of the old actors. Gabe also asks about uh, more 3D file drops. He doesn't have a 3D printer, but he's willing to pay a, fe a fellow squire for some prints. Well, more importantly, as I just stated, if you guys want to see more, buy the files. Support this avenue. That will, again, send a clear message to me that I needed to focus on this. Um, if you keep buying them, I'll keep making them. Lance Tomimoto is asking my thoughts on the Simuli slash Mark Wahlberg controversy. 
Uh, this is kind of a long post, so I'll try to summarize here. Mark Wahlberg, as a teenager, beat the shit out of an Asian guy, uh, used racial slurs, blinded that guy. Uh, and the actor, Simu Lee, who's playing Shang-Chi for Marvel, if I'm pronouncing that right, had a lot of critical tweets about Wahlberg. Um, and now Wahlberg has cast him in a movie and he, the actor has gone back and deleted all these critical tweets. Um, in Lance's words, he's going to make a lot of money and it's a big project, but do you think he should have stuck to his guns or does everyone have a price? Uh, sorry, my Asian friends are having an argument about it and I want an outside opinion. Well, as an Asian American, I'm happy to weigh in here. Um, just kidding, I'm not Asian American. Spoiler alert. Um, look, I think, uh, one, you know, this is largely a Twitter feud and I really want people to log off of Twitter. <laughs> uh, I, I think if you find yourself obsessing or thinking about these things, the answer is to log off, you know. Um, the other thing is we're trying to sort of shoehorn in morality in a very unmoral world. And I think that largely we get fixated and focused on things like celebrities taking a stand or wokeness or things like that because we have no moral compass in our day-to-day -day lives in this superstructure we find ourselves in. I think if, uh, you know, we provided basic health care and things like that, we would have a sort of moral standing and these little tiny flare-ups that seem to consume the national dialogue for so long that ultimately don't really lead anywhere. We're talking about one rich person versus another rich person. Um, I, I think these are largely sort of distractions and besides the point. I would say also, yes, obviously everybody has a price. In a world where every second is monetized, where we have to sort of endlessly self-promote, where there's no breathing room, where you know, your life or death depends on your ability to sort of earn money with never stopping, uh, then yes, everybody has a price. Every single human interaction and every moral decision has a price tag floating above it. It is my hope that we can transcend that and get to some kind of new system that, you know, maybe doesn't value every piece of human interaction as a transaction in a marketplace. Best Battle Beast element and top three Battle Beast animals. Um, I was quite partial to wood. Don't know why. Just thought it was cool that it would sort of float on top of water. Uh, I don't know the names of the Battle Beasts, but um, just off the top of my head very quickly, the bat was pretty awesome. The bat with the hook hand. Uh, I had the fox that was sort of white and teal armor. That guy I really liked. And then the duck, just for comedic sake. Favorite Fisher-Price adventure person. A lot of uh, Montana Midnight and his personality is based on... Um, there was a sort of Jacques Cousteau-looking motherfucker that came with... I, I, I'm not sure what set, but he had a brown top khaki pants, high boots, and big mutton chop sideburns. And, um, you know, I just think he's got, he's got a great attitude. Now Lance is obviously trolling here when he says my favorite Star Wars movie is Solo. What are the issues with it that made me dislike it? Um, 
I actually, I think Solo is the better of the new wave of Star Wars films. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, I know that's an unpopular opinion. I, I do think now that Mandalorian is here, there's a much higher standard for what constitutes new Star Wars, and everything else kind of pales in comparison. Favorite rom-com movie? My lady is looking for some recommendations. Um, it's not really a rom-com, but a very, very, very good movie in the subject of romance is about a boy with Hugh Grant. Um, really, really fantastic film. Nicholas Hornsby, I think, was the wrote the book it was based on. Uh, he also wrote High Fidelity. Um, I, just a, a very profound movie. And it has funny parts. It has sad parts. Um, I, I would sort of say that there are, you know, rom-coms are a little vapid. Sorry, guys. Sorry, <laughs> Night of the Slice fans. I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit you where it hurts. Um, so I, I like that um, About a Boy is sort of, it has some of the trappings of that, but it, it is actually very deep and very thoughtful and reflective movie. Favorite Wes Anderson movie? Um, I guess Life Aquatic. I, you know, I would really love for him to do a genre picture, like do a slasher film, do a sci-fi film. He, he needs to get out of being Wes Anderson because it, it is incredibly tiresome at this point. Lance also asks, uh, have I ever seen the select Ninja Assassins line from the 80s? He's just discovered them and is extremely covetous for them. Did I ever have any? Have I seen them? What do I think? Uh, I have owned a couple uh, in my my uh, time as a toy historian. They are okay figures. There is a sort of um, action feature which kind of, I wouldn't say inhibits them, but is the sort of main focus of them. You know, they're they're relatively well done compared to a lot of the kind of knockoff figures that were going on uh, at the same time. And they have cloth goods, so, um, you know, never going to be mad at that. I, I don't think I still own any of them. They've, they've probably moved on to other places. Lance's final question is Bill Pullman or Bill Paxton? Uh, definitely Bill Paxton. Rest in peace. Philip Rara says, what mistakes related to your business did you learn from uh, and something that improved your business? the greatest teacher is failure. Um, I would say I'm constantly failing at uh, my business. Now, the business is in the black, which is good, but I make strategic blunders all the time. Every single figure I've put out has had things that I wasn't happy with or needed fixing or would be a sort of working, work in progress running change. Um, I don't see success and failure as a sort of binary thing. They are kind of merged together. For every successful sale, it is kind of coupled with quite a few different failings. And and the word failure and the idea of failing is not a negative for me. Um, it is a, it's kind of neutral, as success is neutral to me. These are two things wrapped in the same experience. Um, so I, I think in my younger years, I was certainly afraid of failing or things not selling or being unnoticed or people not reading my Ashcan comics. Um, now, you know, I, I do not look at the concept of failure as a exclusive emotion outside of the creative process. It is, it's all wrapped in there. It's built in. It's part of it. Sean Gordon, if I buy a vintage Toy Max 
Tomax figure and take it apart, will the matching Zaymot figure from the original two-pack also far apart, fall apart, wherever it might be? Sean, you're talking twin logic, and as far as I know, it's scientifically proven. So yes, I think that your theory would bear out. Moving along to some Facebook questions, Ultras Baltard. Why do you think the Gremlins 2 never got a toy line back in the 90s? Each and every Gremlin in that movie seemed like they were tailor-made to become figures, yet the line didn't happen. Was the movie just not popular? Was it too morbid? Uh, good question. Quick funny anecdote. Um, I had never seen Gremlins as a kid. I was terrified of that sort of stuff, but I loved um, Gizmo. I just thought he was the cutest character in the world. And so I harangued my parents to get me the little gizmo plush. It was about, you know, five inches tall. And it was pretty ubiquitous. It was out there in the in all the stores. You, you would see it all the time. And uh, they finally got it for me. I don't know what the occasion was, but they uh, gifted it to me. And I was so enthralled. I had wanted it for months and months. I wanted to, like, go on little adventures with him, keep him in my pocket. And my parents gave it to me. They walked away. My older brother came up to me and he said, you realize that if you get water on him, he will turn into a gremlin. That's what happens in the movie and that's what happens with the toys. And I was instantly terrified by this proposition. So I took him and sealed him in my closet and like tied the handle shut. And I never ever played with that toy again. And he he spent his days in that closet for the fear that this would happen. And that's part of the reason why 2020 was such a bad year because my brother said that to me in January. And uh, you know, I don't think I'm ready to open up that closet. Maybe in 2021. Um, there were toys for Gremlins part one. My guess is they probably did not do well enough to uh, necessitate a line for the sequel, which granted was quite a few years later. Um, also, there was that sort of stop and go that happened in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, where things like the Kenner alien figure was very popular, but then had a lot of outrage and they peeled it back. I think that you're on to something with thinking it was too morbid and too gory that, uh, you know, they didn't feel it was appropriate for kids. My final point that I'll make is Gremlins 2 is an absolute masterpiece. We watched it this year. It is so prescient in predicting so many things that came to a head this past year. I really beckon all of you go watch it. Unpopular opinion, I don't really like Gremlins 1. It's a fine movie. Gremlins 2 is a fantastic of cinema you absolutely have to watch it and the jokes still land it's really really something else so uh go watch that fantastic film also while i'm on that jag <laughs> while i have you here captive the best christmas movie is scrooged just watch that my girlfriend had never seen it somehow uh absolutely fantastic film hilarious film well written and bill murray's speech at the end of the movie um, is very, very heartfelt. You know, uh, it, it, it really hit in a different way. And I think that 
he's a fantastic actor and I think he was genuinely feeling some of the emotions that were going on in that diatribe at the end of it and uh, I think it's a very timely film and uh, if you guys have never seen it or it's been a few years watch it again it that is another masterpiece absolutely Jake Meyer if I had to be a bird what kind of bird would I be definitely a bird of prey you know Jake and I we live out here in the sticks we're seeing a lot of hawks a lot of peregrines a lot of uh, falcons um god they are impressive the way they glide right it's just beautiful I don't want to be a, a parakeet in a cage squawking I want to be one of those raptors up there flying high above the Hudson just looking for my prey moving along Eric Valverde about metallic colorways and glios number one I know you said you lack time to follow slash collect every glios drop but you are familiar enough with the metallics that you have a favorite tone uh, or one that you think gives the effect better than others two if working on a piece you're not particularly you are not particular about this aspect and would be okay going with whatever the cast results are would I go for a painted effect to get exactly what I had in mind? And three, this leads Eric to thinking about Send 5, and am I going to share with you all if I'm working on a metallic version? Fantastic questions, and in all honesty, a lot of the, the same things I've been thinking about lately. And the reason is, Send 5 is a go, folks. I have wired the deposit to the factory. They will begin tooling. We will hit... The Chinese New Year, and there will be quite a gap in updates on him while that happens. But he is officially underway. He is in production, so this is an exciting time. And of course, I have to be uh, working on my designs for him. So I've been thinking a lot about metallics. Um, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with the Pantone color system, but that is the Bible for toy production and matching plastic colors and things like that. It is a art it is not a science you cannot always get the exact color you're thinking of it's you know it really takes a mix master to to kind of get these hues uh so i've been spending a lot of time in the 870s there's a 870 odd um this is where your metallic basic colors are um let's see if i can answer these specifically do i have a favorite tone or one that i think gives an effect better than others um you know you're your basic ones are really like 877. This is your silver metallic, pretty standard color. And then for gold, you got a couple different hues, but usually 871 is the brightest one. You want to stick with that. Now, Matt Dowdy has developed ultra metallics. These are through a lot of time-tested back and forth with the factory. He's come up with really dynamic sort of chemistry for the amount of pigment, the temperature it's shot in, all these different factors that kind of go into making, you know, injection molded plastic. So there is a, a sort of a library of colors that are not necessarily available in the Pantone book, and you wouldn't necessarily be able to get another factory to match that, but do exist for us glios makers. So I try to lean on that as much as I can, because these ultras are really quite dynamic um i guess if i had to pick yeah i think like just a, a good silver 877 i think that that is you know a really beautiful one I, I would also say for those that had the old night meg which was a bluish tint 
silver. That one is really quite dynamic. That, that sort of sings, and I, I like that one quite a bit. Number two, um, am I okay with what the cast results are, or would I go for a painted effect to get what I had in mind? There are occasions where the molded plastic color does not meet my standard, and that sometimes a spray app is necessary. Now, as much as I like that 877 silver metallic, I actually think a spray app 877 is a, a bit more dynamic. So an example of this is the Royal Device Ninja. His arms are spray 877. So he's not shot in that color plastic, but rather spray paint or spray gun is used to achieve that silver effect. And I think actually that is a bit more dynamic than the base plastic color. So there are some instances where you want to think about a spray app versus a base color plastic. There have been famously times where the metallic color did not come out right. For those who remember the debut of Device Ninja, the Action Figure of the Month one was supposed to be a gunmetal blackish metallic. And the mix came out and it was way too dark. It just looked like a black device ninja and we already had an unpainted black device ninja so we had to reconfigure things switch them around and you know we ended up uh with Royal Knight being a store item rather than a uh action figure of the month to sort of cover the things we were swapping around so it, it does happen and you do have to improvise if the mixture is not right now that you know happens rarely thankfully the team is pretty damn good um, and then Eric's third question here, Send 5, am I working on metallic versions? Yes, I, I want to use metallics quite a bit with Send 5. Uh, you know, 2021 is really the year of the robot for the Glios community, so I think you're going to see a lot of metallics for a lot of different makers next year, and, and that's going to be exciting. It's going to be a lot of fun. there you have it folks thanks so much for the questions i hope everyone is having a wonderful christmas and a very nice holiday season i can't help but feel pretty optimistic that the new year is just around the corner and while there will be a lot of challenges in 2021 i for one will be very glad to leave behind 2020 and start anew so uh merry christmas to everybody happy holidays thank you for the listen. Thank you for your time and pizza out.